So what is the Bible to you? What is the Bible? Is it a safe book? Or is it a dangerous book? This book. I'm not so sure that it's one or the other. It could probably be both. But this is what it is. It is a dynamic book. We believe in the plenary, that's the word for fullness, the full inspiration of Scripture. It is a dynamic book. It is alive. That's what the Bible says about itself. It's alive. It's living. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a living word. The reason why I asked that question today is because if that is true, and it is true, then that means we need to connect the Bible not to some ancient history that's part of it, to understand it, but to where we are right now, where we live right now. So what's the Bible to you today? It might be a little dangerous today. And it'll also be a little safe. When you hear the idea of getting back to basics, what comes to your mind? Because living in this new ordinary requires just that. It requires that we get back to the basics. And in some ways, I think it could be rightly said that over these recent months, we have been forced to get back down to many basics. Let me share with you some examples of that from my perspective. You may have some other perspective, but these are some things that have really challenged me and brought me back to some basics. He knocked on our door the other day. I was in the backyard studying. I was sitting at our picnic table in the back, setting up a little study area. And it was my friend and neighbor, Ralph, and he came and he wanted to sit on our porch. And so Ralph and I, socially distant, sat on our porch together and we just began to talk. Ralph and Christine have lived on this road forever and they wanted to know one thing because you know we've had a lot of blowdown of wood and there's trails back in there that have all been clouded up and clogged up and you know what he wanted to do he wanted to know if he could clear the church's trails the kind of neighbor he is so he said you know if you hear a chainsaw <laughs> you gotta know what's going on I said of course and then we got to talking about where we were and we asked each other how each other was doing and and Ralph, you got to know him. He's, he's a fun guy to talk to. Brilliant man. He cocked his head and he had a smile as we began to talk about the recent months. And this is what he said to me. You know, in these recent months, Christine and I have been spending more time together. And I'm loving it. You see, back to basics, right? Back to basics. I've noticed over these recent months that my appetite for television has diminished. I mean, even sports. Can't believe that, Trevor, but it's true. Even sports. I mean, my wife's probably celebrating. I, I just find I, I, I desire to reflect more on what actually matters than the noise we call news or who's winning the game or the 48th repeat of NCIS, right? What's happening to me? I'm going back to basics. The death of a black man under the knee of a white police officer has caused everyone, everyone, 
to think about race and injustice as it's played out in our nation. All of us are thinking about that. But it seems to me, as we come to that conversation with humility and lowered defenses, we have an opportunity to go back to the book of Genesis. We find opportunity to recover the truth of the divinely bestowed image of God in every person and the beauty of God's creative genius expressed in our diversity. We go back to Genesis. We are going back to the basics, it seems to me. And even simple, though inconvenient practices, we're all going to someday, someday, we're going to have a mask-burning party. Right? Amen? Right. We all are going to do that someday. But even simple, though inconvenient practices intended to safeguard others, others from sickness have forced us to come face to face with whether or not we actually believe what Jesus said when he said that the sum total of the law was love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Forcing us to really get back to basics. As I said, I think these days are requiring us to do just that. So when we turn to Romans 10 in the middle of a complicated argument on justification or righteousness by law or faith, Paul, it seems to me, has a clarifying moment. He brings salvation back to the basics. He brings all that we talk about when it comes to the Christian faith in some ways back to the basics. Let's see how we connect those to the world we live in. In Romans chapter 10, beginning with verse 9, we read these words. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Thanks be to God. It's pretty clear, isn't it, I think? It's about going back to the basics. The question we have to ask ourselves is, are we going to go back to our basics or God's basics? Salvation is the result of our own ownership of the gospel as truth for our lives. Believing in your heart suggests that the resurrection of Jesus is more than just religious truth or historical reality. The most easily proved historical event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But believing in your heart about that is more than religious truth or historical reality. It is what has captured your heart and your soul. Has the living Christ captured your heart and your soul? Dallas Willard put it this way. He, he said the soul is the operating system of your life. I love that de definition, don't you? Believing in the resurrection of Jesus is about allowing God to be God at that level, at the operating system level of your life and of my life. It's not just the head level. And in many ways, it's not just the emotional level, the heart level. It's deeper than that. It's that operating system that dictates how we live. But then declaring Jesus is Lord is saying something else as well because of that belief. 
It is saying Jesus is Lord. That means none other is. That there are no others in comparison. But I think I'm not so sure we understand all that that means. But the moment that this letter was read to Paul's original recipients, they understood what it meant. And here's why. When they heard him say, Jesus is Lord, their ears pierced up, and here's why. You see, when the first Caesar, Augustus Caesar, was born in B.C. 63, 63 B.C., do you know what they called that? They called that the gospel of his birth, the good news of his birth. And then when Caesar Augustus died in A.D. 14, he was called the Son of God. Roads were named after him to that effect. And this cult of Caesar worship, because that's what it was, ascribed to him this title. Caesar is Lord. That's right. Caesar is Lord is what they said. That was a legal title for Caesar. And this is what we need to understand. All of Roman society was oriented around that. So when Paul says Jesus is Lord, he is saying Caesar is not. Um, in his book, Dominion, secular historian Tom Holland said that this was the most subversive threat to the primary organizing and orienting worldview of the Roman Empire. This was subversive. The Jesus that Paul is declaring here does not share his glory with others, especially with Caesar and any other god. And in this, this um, polytheistic world of, of the Roman Empire with all these different gods, they looked at the Christians and said, you have one god? What's your problem? You guys are not spiritual at all. But this Jesus shares no glory with others. In fact, there were no other deities, period. Paul put it this way to the Corinthians, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, now listen closely, one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. But there is one Lord, again, those hearers pick up, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. You see, the people reading this were taught that they got all things from Caesar, and through Caesar they lived in the Roman Empire. Isn't that interesting? So what does this say to us in these days when, for some, Christian faith is judged by what political party we stand for or stand with? There is no salvation in one party or the other. Only Jesus is Lord and our salvation depends on our declaration, our clear declaration of this in the face of powers and forces and people who would declare or want us to live otherwise, including ourselves. See, one way to define the faith that Paul is speaking about here is this. Trust in the Lord, right? 
Trust in Jesus as Lord means this. God is God and you are not. And I am not. God is God and you are not. God is God and no one else is and nothing else is. Now that's going back to basics. See, Paul's like pulling it back to basics. You want to know what this faith is really about? Jesus is Lord and none other and therefore he wants to consume your life. One Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. And so the level ground of the gospel for every human being begins with living with Jesus as Lord and it translates into the living God being the organizing and orienting power over the operating system of my life. That's about getting back to basics, isn't it? So that's the question I, I have to ask myself. Is Jesus really the organizing and orienting power of how I live my life? How I engage my world? How I view what's happening around me? You see, it starts there with Jesus as Lord, believing in this living God. But in a world like ours, where we have so individualized religion where we have made it so much we've made faith personal private and individualized we need to know that the basics are more than individualized religion during our word and prayer this past Wednesday I said the beauty of salvation as scripture teaches is not simply what it does for you and me, but what it does through you and me because of what it does for you and me. Hear that again. The beauty of salvation is not just about what it does for me, for you, but what it does through you and me because of what it does for you and me. The beauty of my individual salvation, the beauty of my experience of the forgiveness of my sins and life everlasting in Jesus Christ is directly connected to how God wants to beautify the world around me. Now over this series that we've been talking about, this new ordinary, we have tried to consider how we are to live in this world, this new ordinary. And the truth be told, those whose primary allegiance is to Jesus Christ ought to be the most suited people to live and face these days. By now, we have all rehearsed the words that describe our times, right? Uncertain, unpredictable, unknown, days of turmoil, strife, division. It's that last descriptor, division, that I believe the Apostle Paul speaks to here as well. You see, the new ordinary we're living in has magnified, has magnified for us the old story of mankind. One could argue, I believe effectively, that the story of man's sinful fall in the garden is the us-versus-them narrative. For Adam and Eve, it was us, Adam and Eve, versus God. And I would say every time we view or treat someone less than made in the image of God, even our enemy, we do the same thing. 
our us-versus-them thinking is actually an us-versus-God mentality because we're choosing to be Lord over what God thinks of other people. Why do I say that? Well, a couple weeks ago, we said this from Romans chapter 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Isn't that good news? If God is for us, who can be against us? Here's the challenge with that text. It's very easy for us to weaponize that scripture in our favor. We see God as adopting our opinion or taking our side or supporting our cause or affirming our biases. But that statement from Paul is about this. God is the God who is for all of us. Amen? He is for all of us. He is for humankind, desiring for mankind to have relationship with him that bleeds over into our relationship with others that is marked by what Jesus intended salvation to be. It's about salvation Jesus style, right? And Jesus, Jesus taught us what salvation Jesus style was. When he entered the scene, when he walked up and he wanted to explain why he was around, this is what he said in Luke chapter 4, quoting Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, he said, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. He has set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he set the scroll aside and he said, these words have been fulfilled in your hearing right now. See, that's salvation Jesus style. Is my style of salvation Jesus style of salvation? Jesus is saying in this partial quote from Isaiah 61 that he came to inaugurate God's great project of making all things right. In other words, he has come to bring justice to the world. That's what the word justice really means, making all things right. That justice necessitates making individuals right. It necessitates me recognizing that I'm a sinner in need of the grace of God through Jesus Christ, that I can find forgiveness, that I can be made in right relationship with God. And I can live with God as the organizing center of the operating system of my life. Jesus is Lord. It necessitates that because it is people in right relationship with God who can live in a world where we can participate with God in making things right. Where we can participate with God in showing the world what it looks like when God makes all things right. Our lives are pointing to the day that we all long for when he makes all things right. That's salvation Jesus style. So what does that mean for the church right now? I think it's rather dangerous. What does that mean for those who declare Jesus as Lord and desire him to oversee the operating system of their lives? As Mindy Douglas put it, as the church, we do not build walls to keep people out. 
That means we do not build walls to keep people out. All are invited into this relationship of trust and dependence on God. God's invitation and salvation is for all who trust in the Lord. This is the word of faith we preach, Paul said. It is radical. This is radical. It is grace. We're going to see how radical it is. Because what this means then is this. His invitation is not dependent. His invitation in this is not dependent on cultural heritage, race, or ethnicity, sexual orientation, or gender, religion, or politics, refugee or immigrant status, age or ability, body art or piercings, socioeconomic status or affluence, certain styles of worship or a type of church, good Christian upbringing or lack of it. Do you know how glad I am that that's true? How glad I am that that's true when I entered the doors of that little Nazarene church in Southern California. And I was welcomed in spite of everything I was not. Because let me tell you, I walked in that door, I was not like them. It was us and them, me and them. I was not like them. But here's what's even more amazing to me. I was welcomed more importantly, in spite of everything that I was. Just to give you a little glimpse, just before that time, we were in Bermuda on my last tour of duty, and Kathleen had made a, uh, a cake for me or something. We had dinner, and we had our friends, Keith and Alan, over, who were Nazarene kids since they were 10 years old, now young men, godly, godly, never heard one foul word come out of their mouth. And we were talking about our faith, and I was in the Navy. I'd been in the Navy. Can you imagine what Navy people talk like? Right? So Kathleen had made this meal or whatever it was. I don't remember the details of that part. I just do remember this. Then we got the subject of faith. I just began describing my faith. I was so excited. And next thing you know, all of these expletives came out in front of these Christian guys. And I just kind of was horrified. And that's what walked into that little Nazarene church would live the lifestyle that was so contrary to everything that I would believe today and uphold today. But you know what they did? No one, no one said, you can't be here. Glenn Bailey, who was as old as dirt, took me in, taught me how to pray. I learned how to pray at an altar, praying. Why? Because they welcomed me in. Pastor Gebhardt took me in. He said, come to breakfast at the men's Bible study. And here I was with all these people who were so much more than I was and who welcomed me in spite of what I was. That's good news, isn't it? That's the gospel for us, isn't it? Now, believe it or not, that leads us back to Romans 10. You thought we left there. But Paul has been speaking about his desire to see his fellow Jewish friends and countrymen come to faith in Christ. He says he's even willing to perish to see that happen. That's amazing to me. But then he also points out something that is so critical for living in this new ordinary. Beginning at verse 11, he says this, and he's quoting all kinds of scriptures from the Old Testament in this. He says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Praise God. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
No difference between Jew and Gentile. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Now, we live in a world that magnifies our differences. We have to fabricate enemies. We diminish others to make ourselves appear better than we are. We point to what we don't have in common to prove our point. We categorize people. Every single person here psychologically has what's called a category bias. We do that to try to manage all the world's information in our heads. But what we do is we categorize people often unintentionally and fall into that us versus them trap. And that was especially true in the Roman Empire, the way that culture was organized in the caste system. So what Paul said here was revolutionary then as it is now. No difference between Jew or Gentile. Anyone, he said, everyone, he said. That historian, Tom Holland, is an unbeliever. He's written this book on Dominion called Dominion about the impact historically of Christianity just from a historical perspective. And he said, only the world turned upside down could ever have sanctioned such a revolutionary announcement that this was for everyone. The gospel is the leveling ground for everyone through Jesus Christ. The gospel knows no boundary. And that's a prominent theme in Paul's writings. Remember Ephesians 2, he says, Christ himself is our peace. He has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. You know, when the killing of George Floyd occurred and the pain of injustice of people of color spilled over, I preached a series called Listening for the Gospel because I thought that's what we needed to listen to. And on June 7th, I said this, Paul is specifically talking about the barriers God breaks down between Jew and Gentiles. That represented religious differences, cultural, and even racial differences. No longer does their difference prevent one or the other from being recipients of God's peace. In fact, the peace they discovered becomes a unifying agent. Christ is the barrier-breaking God. As men are often erecting barriers between one another, God is breaking them down. Jesus broke the rules of association and takes a wrecking ball to barriers erected to keep people out or keep people from. The normal barriers erected were constantly torn down by Jesus. Ungodly sinners were welcomed. Unclean were seen and touched. The poor mattered. Women were dignified and elevated. Children were celebrated. The marginalized were counted. Different ethnicities were honored. The sick were not neglected. One barrier after another, taken down, and in our day, the need is just as stark. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The Lord is the Lord of all. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, that's about being back to the basics. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, if you dare to claim that Jesus is Lord, if you dare to claim that this is the starting place of how you view people. And so notice what this does not say. It does not say you have to be white or black or Latino. It does not say you have to be a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent. It does not say you have to vote for Donald Trump or Joe Biden or the writing candidate of your choice. It does not say you need to dress a certain way, sound a certain way, look a certain way. It does not need you to say you need to worship a certain way, attend a certain kind of church. It does not say you need to be a part of a certain group or have a certain status. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is the great leveling ground. Amen. For all humanity. I love that. That's why I got in. <laughs> That's why they let me in. That's why they put their arms around me. But I think that's also why we struggle with it sometimes. We want to determine who's in and who's out. We struggle because you cannot in any way, shape, or form put yourself in a better position to be loved by God and welcomed by God more so than your neighbor who is probably unlike you, looks and sounds different than you, might vote differently than you, may have came from a different part of the neighborhood. This is the message concerning faith that we proclaim, Paul said. Hear it again. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who realizes that God is God and they are not, who accepts Jesus as Lord, anyone, man, that is good news. And that life will be transformed. But doesn't that also transform the way we approach all people with the good news? Good news that must be for all, or it's not good news for any? Paul ends this section by talking about how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so we have been given the grace of salvation and the opportunity of being the beautiful feet. What does it look like for us to be the beautiful feet of the good news of Jesus in this world of difference? You see, this is the leveling ground. Getting back to the basics of the gospel. Getting the gospel basics back into us. What does that mean for you today? What does that mean for us today? Let's live from the leveling ground through Jesus Christ. Amen. As we close our service in a moment, I'm going to pronounce a benediction upon us, but you're going to hear our instrumentalists be playing as we're departing, mighty to save. How good it is, how glad I am that our God is mighty to save. Amen? So receive this benediction today. I pray that this word of life, this word of grace, would be poured out inside us all and through us all. And I pray that as we go from this place today, that we would live the gospel in the measure that the gospel has been given to us. May we live with Jesus as Lord at the center of the operating system of our lives. And may people, may the world around us take notice because he's mighty to save. Amen? Amen. Go in peace today.